Good morning. Good to see you. Good to be together. Uh, as Kyla mentioned, I'm wrapping up uh, this series called The Wellness Check uh, that we've been in the last several weeks, talking about spiritual health, uh, mental health, emotional health, and today we're talking about physical health. And hopefully you've heard this theme uh, throughout each of the weeks that all of these are integrated. As much as we want to separate one from another, the spiritual overlaps into the mental, which overlaps into the emotional, uh, the physical. If you ever you know, had, had the experience of feeling tension or pain in your body, and you know it's because of maybe an unresolved conflict or a concern or anxiety that you're experiencing, God created us as integrated persons, whole beings. And so we can't just separate one part of who we are. And as much as culture loves to throw around things like, well, it's just physical, uh, that's actually not true uh, from a biblical standpoint. So I'm excited to get to wrap up our series together. Um, before we dive into God's word, I want to pray uh, from my own heart, uh, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to just give us ears to hear what you have for every single one of us. So would you pray with me? Jesus, you are so good, so faithful, so loving. Thank you for your incredible grace. Thank you for the gift of your presence, that you were always with us. God, thank you that you you speak so clearly and and personally to each of our hearts. Even uh, this morning, uh, I love as I was brushing my teeth, God, you you brought uh, an additional piece to this message, and I just... uh, ask, or if, if you will give permission again, God, just if there's anything that you would uh, redirect in our time together, uh, w- would you do that? Um, I also ask that you would just, just help us to clear away any distractions, um, anything else that might be competing for our attention or our affection right now, and would you help us to really just center our hearts on you and what you have for every single one of us. We love you, trust you, in your name, amen. All right, well, we are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19 today, if you want to grab your Bible or Bible app and, and get there, um, is where we're going to kind of be. But I want to, I want to talk about kind of this, this series as a whole, because again, we've, we've talked about several different aspects of our life and, and, and why it's important that we uh, show up in our relationships uh, fully well, healthy. Um, and, and one of the resources that I've used, especially in this, this message here, um, is a book called God in My Everything, written by a pastor in Vancouver, B.C. Um, there's just kind of one chapter that I kind of grabbed specifically for this conversation. But he walks through, if we really want to experience God in every aspect of our lives, whether it's in a moment like this where we come with a desire and an expectation to put our focus and attention on the Lord, or whether it's in what feels like a very mundane moment, whether it's chasing your toddler or going to work on Monday morning again or preparing a meal or whatever it might be, that God is in every aspect of our lives. We like to separate life into um, like the secular and kind of the normal or the, the spiritual and the normal. And, and biblically, that just that's not true like God says no every single part if you, if I am your focus and your passion and your purpose is aligned uh, in, through Jesus then every single part is a holy moment of life and so I think it's important that we recognize that and, and, and one of the things that ancient followers of Jesus would, would talk about is they would they would talk about this uh, rule of life not rules like in terms of rules to follow but a rule of life think of it like a structure 
Actually, that rule is the same word um, in Latin. It's regla. It's the same word to, to describe a lattice. If you had a vine that was trying to grow, a grapevine or a, a green bean vine, whatever it was, you need a, a structure for that vine to be able to ascend to where it's supposed to be for maximum fruitfulness. A, a rule of life is similar. It's a lattice. It's a structure for us to say, okay, I want my life to, to be fully integrated in what God has for me and, and what he wants to do in my life and through my life. And it's not a list of rules to follow. It's a, it's a rule I love the way to describe it. It's a rule that bends. So it's a, it's a guideline, if you will. It's habits and things I want to put in front of me that will help me grow in my love for God and my love for people. And this year, we're, as a church, we're asking and answering this question of, am I all in for Jesus, and what does it mean to be all in for Jesus? Well, Jesus was asked one of the greatest uh, questions during his time on earth. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Because there was multiple debates on all about the hundreds of commandments that we see in the Old Testament. Which one is the most important? Well, they asked him for one, and he gave them two. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, meaning this, if you were to boil down everything you see in the Old Testament and summarize it, that's how you summarize it. Love God, love people, and you can't separate those two. You can't say, well, I really love God, but I don't really like his people. Or I'm all about loving people, but I don't want nothing to do with Jesus. Like, that doesn't work. Because Jesus says you can't separate these two. So what does it mean to be all in for Jesus? I would propose that it means that you and I are growing in people who love God and love people in an ever-increasing direction. That's what that means. And in part of us being healthy, this wellness check conversation says, okay, am I well? Am I healthy so that I can bring the best of me to my relationship with God and my relationship with others? Here's the way Parker Palmer says it. He says, self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer to others. So it's important that we start with what's the why for this conversation. Okay, now I want to get to 1 Kings 19. Before we dive into 1 Kings 19, we've got to set up the context here. So there's this man named Elijah. Elijah was an incredibly renowned prophet in Israel's history. I mean, you you just read through 1 Kings. I mean, it is incredible that the miracles that God did through this man. Okay, so at this point in Israel's history, uh, they're not doing so well. Okay, they, they go through different leadership changes, and as goes the leader, so goes the nation in, in Israel and all throughout human history um, often. And so we see in Israel that at this point, uh, there's an especially bad duo of leaders. And, and it's a king named Ahab and a queen named Jezebel. And they basically led almost the entire nation away from following and trusting the Lord. They were starting to worship these, these false gods. And, and, and Elijah is, is kind of the, the one guy who's left, the one prophet of the Lord who's left, who's been faithful. And the Lord tells him, okay, Elijah, it's time 
It's time for a contest. It's time for a showdown to see who is the one true God. It's an amazing story. You've got to read 1 Kings 18, but basically here's what happens. is Elijah goes and he, he basically challenges King Ahab. He says, hey, I want you to get together all these prophets of Baal who are worshiping and leading people to worship this false God. Get them together. And then I'm just going to be me by myself. And we're going to have a contest to see whose God is the one true God. And they each prepare a sacrifice. And basically, Elijah says, we're not going to light the sacrifice. So whoever's God responds with bringing fire down from heaven, that's how we're going to know who the one true God is. Well, these 450 prophets of Baal, they, 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 they cry out to their God from morning until night. They're dancing around and shouting and singing and, and even harming themselves by cutting themselves and blood's flowing. It's just this weird experience as I'm picturing it in my mind reading this passage. And Elijah, I love with, with some good smack talk, is kind of just going like, well, maybe he's sleeping. So, so shout a little bit louder. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's, maybe Ball's going to the bathroom and he'll, he'll, he'll get back to you in a moment. He, I mean, he's just like giving it to him and nothing's happening. Morning until night, this all goes on. And Elijah says, okay, my turn. Now you have to know that during this time in history, Israel is experiencing a drought. Lasts over three years. So you think about ancient world, drought, water is scarce. So Elijah prepares his sacrifice, and then he says, okay, get some water, and I want you to dump some water on the altar, on the sacrifice. He goes, okay, now, now do it again. They do it again, fill up the buckets. And he says, now do it a third time. So much water that it overflows off the altar, fills the trench around the altar. And then Elijah prays for God to respond. And here's what happens in 1 Kings 18, verse 38 and 39. It says, Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. And then after this incredible display of God's power, fire coming down from heaven, Elijah prays to end the three and a half year drought. And God responds and sends this monsoon rain that just douses the entire land. I mean, think about this. Elijah has just experienced God working through him in two miraculous ways that I think most of us in the room have hardly even dreamt about God doing something like that in us or, or through us, let alone actually witnessed this. So you would think, well, surely after that kind of spiritual victory, things are going to be really good for Elijah going forward, right? Like smooth sailing, no issues, no doubts, no challenges, no problems. And then we get to 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And Elijah was afraid 
and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Anyone else wonder, like, how, how did we get here, Elijah? Like, what, 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 what happened between chapter 18 and 19? Fire from heaven, a three-year drought ending because the Lord told you to pray and God responded. And now here you are running for your life. Suicidal, depressed, isolated. Okay, I want us to pause on Elijah's story for just a moment. We're going to come back, I promise. Again, this series is called The Wellness Check to ensure that we are healthy people physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. I would add relationally as well because we need people around us who are helping us to grow in our love for God and our love for others. And while physical health or or lack of physical health, which we're talking about today, can be one of the easiest of of those health checks to at least visually see and recognize. Like you, you wake up and you feel when something is off. Right? I don't always recognize as quickly when my emotions are off. I, I wish I did. It would probably save me a lot of angst and hardship and conflict. But physically, you can, you can tell right away, I don't feel good. My throat's kind of scratchy. My neck kind of hurts. Like you, you know right away. And while it can be one of the easiest things to see and, and, and kind of diagnose or self-assess, I think sometimes in the church, uh, physical health can also kind of be the, the bottom rung of the ladder of everything else. Like spiritual health, yes, absolutely, we can talk about spiritual health. Mental health, yes. Emotional health, yes. And, and physical health is kind of like, yeah, it's important. We should talk about it. But sometimes, let's be honest, it just feels like a losing battle. It's like, gosh, no matter how hard I try, I'm like not making any progress. Or we just kind of say it's, it's a temporary battle, right? We're going to get these new bodies in heaven, so let's just like wait for that, which, which is true. Yes, new bodies are coming. I'm excited for that. Don't get me wrong, but I, I think there's, there's something to making sure that we're also aware of the importance that the Lord places on our physical health here and now. And God in my everything, Ken Shigematsu says this, the body, mind, and spirit are all interconnected. This means that physical practices are also spiritual practices. When we attend to the basic needs of our bodies, we will likely find ourselves, listen, more attentive to God and more available to people. Because I know for me, when I'm talking about physical health, whether it's exercise, whether it's eating right, getting enough rest, we'll talk about those things more in a moment, I need a bigger why. I'm not motivated by my, you know, 40 time, you know, I got the NFL combine happening right now. Like, that's not a motivation for me. Um, I I need a bigger why. And I think if, if we're looking for a bigger why, church, I think here it is to be more attentive to God and more available to people. Because if we, if we separate the physical from the spiritual too much, I think we, we miss the importance that God places on our physical bodies and just physical creation as a whole. 
And I want to look real quickly at some of the things that God says about the physical. One, we see in creation, Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating the heavens and the earth and the plants and the animals and people, after every day of creation, he says, it is good. It is good. And then after the culmination of creation, when he creates people, men and women in his image, he says, it is very good. So God himself declares the physical is good. The world he created is good. The bodies that he gave us are very good. David cries out in Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And then we see the truth of, of the incarnation. Jesus coming to earth in the flesh. God chose to put on flesh. The creator chose to enter his creation as one of us. He would not have done that if he did not see that our bodies are good. That there's purpose to the physical. In, in the early church, there was this false teaching called Gnosticism. And, and while there's a lot more layers to, to this heresy, at, at a high level, it was an over-separation of the physical from the spiritual. Believing that the spiritual was good, but the physical was, was bad or even evil. And so there was this false teaching that arose that say, well, Jesus didn't actually come in a physical body. He came as, as a spirit, and he appeared to have a body, but because they thought that anything physical was tainted or, or, or bad or, or evil or, or less than, they said, well, Jesus couldn't have had a physical body. And, and, and while I don't necessarily think that teaching is, is as dangerous or prevalent in the church today, I think there is a tendency or a temptation to separate the spiritual from the physical a little bit too much. And, and here's some ways it can kind of sneak in. When we, when we think that things like prayer, uh, like prayer maybe feels more important than shoveling the driveway of your widowed neighbor. If we, if we put one of those ab above the other. Or, or if we think that uh, something like sharing the gospel with someone is more important than taking a meal to a, a, a new couple who just brought their baby home for the hospital. Or, or we look at, uh, uh, you know, kind of this, this uh, sacred work of, of preaching or being a missionary is more important than, than the secular work of teaching third grade, parenting your kids, accounting, or being a lawyer. Because we, we over-separate the spiritual from what we feel like is the normal everyday parts of our life. And again, if God truly is in every aspect of our lives, and all of it is spiritual. Every moment is holy. Every moment is intentional when Jesus is the source of your passion and your purpose. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, we see this about our physical bodies. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So we see in Scripture here that our bodies actually belong to the Lord, that we've been bought, purchased with a price. They do not belong only to us. 
We have some incredibly generous friends that we've known uh, for years when we lived in Spokane, and uh, they have this uh, beautiful place uh, up on the Ponderay River. It's kind of their vacation home, and they are so generous uh, with this home. And, and each summer, my family and I, we get to go spend a long weekend or spend a week there and uh, splash and playing in the water. It's just, it's just a beautiful place. And, and they're so kind and so generous, and, and they, they always tell us, hey, don't, you know, don't, don't worry about the laundry. We'll take care of it. And we're like, no, like this, this is your home. You've allowed us to be here to enjoy this beautiful property you have, to stay in your home free of charge. Like, and so our family, we, we try to go above and beyond when we're getting ready to leave. We want to make sure all the, all the bedding is, is washed and, and remade. All the, all the sheets are washed. We, we sweep. We vacuum. We make sure we clean up everything outside because that is not our home. We, we were borrowing it for a time. We were blessed to enjoy it. And so we want to leave it just as good, if not better, than, than when we got to show up at the beginning of that, that stay. And, and I wonder if we looked at our, our bodies sometimes as, well, okay, this is a gift from the Lord. How do I honor God with this gift? Okay, back to Elijah. Thank you. So after these incredible spiritual victories that Elijah has experienced, which I imagine also led to some emotional euphoria as well, right? I mean, you see God moving that way. You've got to just be pumped if you're Elijah. But then we see him totally off the rails. Like, right? He's, he's running for his life. He's, he said, God, just, I'm done. Like, just let me die. I'm tired of this. And, and, and what does God do? How does God respond and meet Elijah? Does he offer to give a devotional to Elijah? Does he reprimand Elijah for being weak? Like, did you already forget what I just did? Are you kidding me? Look, look what just happened. How are you complaining and whining right now? Does he pray for Elijah? Recommend a good counselor? Now, none of these would have been bad things to do. Let me, let me make that very, very clear. But what God does first is he responds to Elijah's physical needs. Listen to this as the story continues. It says, all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now it's important to note if you continue, and I really encourage you, continue, read the rest of First Kings 19. Because after this moment, the Lord goes on to meet other needs in Elijah's life. One, the need of intimacy with God, where Elijah has this incredible moment of stillness and silence before God, allowing God to minister to his soul. And then the other need of, of relationship, because as, as incredibly strong and as, as mighty of a man of God as Elijah was, none of us are able to or meant to do life alone. 
And God sees the relational need that Elijah has in his life, and he meets that need by telling Elijah to go anoint the man who will come after him and be a prophet in, in his place soon, a man named Elisha. So while I can't preach all of that, we're just going to focus on the physical today. So we see the Lord nurturing Elijah's physical needs in this passage through a few different ways. One, physical touch. Two is rest, then food, and then exercise. I want to talk about each one of these together. So I'm going to be honest. I was brushing my teeth this morning. I did not have touch in my notes until about 7.15 this morning. It was one of those, I was reading the passage, and I'm like, how did I miss this as I was preparing this? Because, again, you and I are created. We, we are physical beings with physical bodies. And, and physical touch is part of how God made us and created us. The fact that the angel comes, he could have shouted, but he reaches out and he touches Elijah. I think that is significant and not a detail just to pass over. Similarly, there's a, there's a moment uh, where Jesus heals a man. I believe it's in Luke chapter 5. And this man has leprosy, this, this skin disease that at that time made you unclean and untouchable. And we don't know exactly how long, but more than likely this man had had this disease for, for years. Imagine going years without the feeling of a hug or a handshake or, or, or someone close enough just to reach out and physically touch you. And this man comes before Jesus and says, I believe that you are able to heal me if you are willing. Now, if you've read the gospel, if you know the story of Jesus' life, you know that there's times where Jesus heals by speaking a word. You know that there's times where Jesus heals where he's not even in the same physical place as the person who needs to be well. So Jesus could have healed this man any way he wanted to, but his response was, I am willing. Then he reaches out and touches this man that society says is untouchable and unclean, and he says, be well. Now, physical touch is incredibly important, especially when we're in, in, in moments of emotional need. I can remember 12 years ago when my dad passed away, and, and I would say the people who had the greatest impact were not those that tried to tell me things like he's in a better place. Yes, he is. I, I believe that. I hurt right now. Or, or people that would try to just share a Bible verse with me, which, yes, those are encouraging as well, and those are good. But those that just said, I'm so sorry, and just gave me a hug. And sometimes you just need a hug. Sometimes the person doesn't need advice. They just need a friend to sit there, put a hand on their shoulder and say, I'm in this with you. And I think that's what the angel, or what the Lord through the angel did with Elijah right away. Now I have to say this as a brief aside. I have a good friend of mine um, and she is not a hugger. She's made that very clear. I don't, I don't like hugs. You gotta respect that too, right? So if someone's, I'm a hugger, I'm always up for a hug, so feel free to give me a hug anytime if you need a hug. I'm glad to be that fill-in hugger. Um, but there's some people that's like, nope, like I, I, physical touch, no, no thank you. Um, so respect that. Maybe it's a gentle tap on the shoulder or something, but it's still kind of that I, I'm, I'm here through, through a physical action. Now, I think because physical touch is, is so strong and powerful, it's something that we need. It's actually, there's, there's studies that show infants who can have all their other physical needs met. 
enough rest, enough nutrition, uh, someone to change their diapers, but if they don't have someone to hold them, especially in those early days and weeks, it's, it's called failure to thrive. So, so an infant can have all their other physical needs met, but they don't have physical touch. They're not going to thrive. And, and there's, it's, it's almost impossible to, to make up the amount of touch needed if it's missed within the first couple months of, of our human lives. It's almost impossible to catch up after that. That's how critical those early moments are. So I think because physical touch is so important, it's an, it's an area that we can experience incredible love, validation, acceptance, and it can also be an incredible spot of pain as well. Okay? Whether that's through abuse, whether that's through mistakes that we, that we made um, in, in our sexual activity, and, and that's why it can be so damaging. That's why when the world says it's just physical, that doesn't work because the physical overlaps into the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual. That's why when it comes to the sexual intimacy experience between a husband and wife, it's so powerful, it's so good, that's why it has to be within the context of biblical marriage. Sometimes I think we get this wrong, especially in the church. Sorry, this is not in my notes, but I think we, because when we talk about the importance of sex being in the context of marriage, it almost comes across in this, in this um, I think, misconstrued message to our, our, our kids, our youth, is like, okay, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't do it before you're married, so save it for your husband. Save it for your wife. I don't think that's the biblical message. Sexuality and, 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 and sexual intimacy is something so good, so sacred, that, that God said that this is so good, this is so powerful, that it must be within the context of a covenant relationship between husband and wife, because that's the only safe place where you can experience that level of intimacy. Because anything else outside is going to damage your soul is going to hurt you. It's so good. That's why it needs to be saved for this incredible relationship called marriage. So we see touch as one of the ways that the Lord ministers to Elijah. Rest. Rest is critical. Elijah takes two naps, right? Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go to sleep. Like when I'm emotional and I'm overthinking things, I'm having conversations in my head with the person I'm upset with, like maybe I just need to take a nap. Like, sometimes that's the most spiritual thing you can do is go to bed. Last April, I shared a message about Sabbath and, and rest. And, well, I don't have time to rehash that entire conversation. I want to note a couple things. One, that God wove rest and Sabbath into the very fabric of creation. We were talking about that in Genesis 1 where he's creating for six days. On the seventh day, God rested. Adam and Eve, the first people, were created on day six. Their first full day of, as created beings is a day of rest with the creator, a day to delight, not to work. And the Jewish day, again, if you read Genesis 1, it says that there was evening, then morning, the second day. There was evening, then morning, the third day. We, we say there was morning and then evening, right? Like that's the way the clock goes. That's the way, that's the way it works. Well, 
it, biblically and in the Jewish context, the, the day starts at sundown to signify and to remember that we start from a spot of rest. Rest comes before work, not the other way around. Elijah was depleted in his rest. He needed rest. We even see this in the life of Jesus, that in the midst of his bustling ministry, the demand and, and need and attention of others, Jesus took time to rest, both individually to be with his father, also to, to, he would take his disciple after they returned from, from, from ministry and traveling and preaching and healing, he took them away to a place to rest because he's modeling for them and for us that we need rest. As people, we love to push the limits. We love, we love to surpass limits. There's certain limits that God has created that were not meant to be passed. We need rest. We're created for rest. And there's a cultural norm, expectancy, and even bragging rights about how little rest we get and how long our to-do list is. Right? Oh, I'm just so busy. Like, that's like a badge of honor in our culture. It really is. And we talk about how little sleep we got, how many cups of coffee or energy drinks were going on, you know, on day six or whatever with two hours of sleep the night before. Like, that's not healthy. That's not good. And, and as the church, we should look different than the prevailing culture around us. We need to have a different way of being. And, and I think one of it is, is rest. Now, going to sleep and getting enough hours of sleep might not feel very spiritual, but I believe it's incredibly spiritual. According to the research from doctors and neuroscientists, healthy adults need seven to nine hours of sleep per night. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on how much sleep you got last night, but the studies also say that about 59% of adults are getting less than that minimum of seven hours. I would say eight to nine hours. I like my sleep, so I'd say seven's a little bit short in my opinion. Uh, Dr. William Demint, the for founder and former director of Stanford's University's Sleep Research Center, contends that sleep, more than any other factor, including diet or exercise and heredity, predicts longevity and health. So I want to give us just some really practical ideas. If rest and sufficient sleep is something that you're like, ah, yep, I could, I could grow in that area, Here's some practical ideas. One, stick to a sleep schedule. Meaning this, try, try to go to bed around the same time each night. Get up around the same time. I know this is hard on the weekends because you want to stay up late and sleep in. It's hard on your body to reset when it comes to Sunday night, tonight, and we're getting up for work or whatever it is tomorrow morning, right? I'm also going to say this as a brief aside. If you're married, go to bed together. I know it's a silly thing. This is more about marriage and, and intimacy and staying connected with your spouse. Even if one of you is going to lay in bed and read longer than the other, it is important to go to bed together. Another conversation, you can ask me about why that's important. Um, another thing is, is exercise. Exercise earlier in the day. 
So try to avoid exercise within the last two to three hours before kind of bedtime because it takes your body time to wind down to get ready to rest. Uh, caution with caffeine. Be careful. It, take, it can take up to eight hours for caffeine to wear off or to get out of your system, and that can make it difficult uh, for, for REM sleep. Um, avoid alcohol in large meals before bed. Again, this robs you of deep sleep and, and REM sleep. And when it comes to large amounts of alcohol before you go to sleep, you tend to wake up in the middle of the night once that alcohol is worn off. Or if you have a large meal before you go to bed, indigestion does not help you sleep well. Okay, so really, I know these are practical. Uh, relax before bed. Have a routine before bed, whether it's reading, whether it's listening to some relaxing music. Try to minimize screen time. Before bed, there's studies that show the blue lights on our screen stimulates brain activity and makes it harder for you to wind down. And I call it parenting your phone. Uh, Mark talked about this with Sonia, is that right? For a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, mental health. Um, our phones are incredible pieces of technology. Uh, they don't always help us in, in different areas of life, this being one of them. When I say parent your phone, I, I have three kiddos. I parent my kids. My kids have a bedtime. They go to bed, hopefully, at that bedtime most nights. My phone has a bedtime. My phone does not come in the bedroom with me. 8.30, maybe 9 o'clock, I'm not looking at my phone after that. It goes in a drawer. I don't look at it until the next morning, until after I've had my cup of coffee. Amen. Got to have the coffee along with some quiet time with Jesus. And then after that, I look at my phone. I have an old-fashioned alarm clock. You can still get those. They still make those. It's incredible. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon. And that's what wakes me up in the morning. And it, and it works. And so I encourage you to put that, put that phone away. Because I know for me, when it comes, here's why rest is important. When I am tired... When I'm rushed, I have too many to-dos on my list, and cranky, I struggle to be present to God and love others well. That's why rest is so important, not just physically, but my spiritual well-being as well. Okay, food. I love that God makes Elijah some food, like some fresh baked bread on some hot coals. He knows the man is hungry. He needs some nourishment. Anyone struggle with hangry sometimes, right? Like, you know, like, okay, I just need that Snickers bar, whatever it is, like, you know, that's brilliant marketing advertising by Snickers, because that's, that's so me. If I missed a meal, and I'm, I, I am not pleasant to be around. I'm not very fun. Now, here's what I want to say about food. Be careful not to make too much or too little of the topic of food and diet. On one end, we can become obsessed, counting every calorie and carb and, and silently judging or condemning others who aren't as committed to nutrition as we are. On the other end, we, we can just kind of not think about it at all. And if we're not careful, instead of confronting the tough emotions that we have or the conflicts we need to resolve, we go to food as a way to cope with our stress, our anxiety, or our feelings of inferiority. So don't make too much or too little. Food is a gift from God. I want to be very, very clear about that. Otherwise, it wouldn't taste so good. Or we would all have the taste buds of a cow and just eat grass all day. And I guess there are some nutrition experts that maybe are in that category. I don't know. But I mean, like to, to enjoy a good meal or especially like a pairing where you have the right flavors mixed together or Friday cakes from Jill. I mean, like there is something really good and spiritual about good food, right? 
We were just over in uh, Missoula this week, and if you ever get a chance to go to Missoula, top hat for dinner, okay? They have a rotating menu, so I'm not going to tell you what I have because it probably won't be there by the time they get there, but phenomenal food. And then we went down to this awesome park that had this giant dragon play structure that my kids ran around on uh, and burned off some of those calories, which was great. And then Sweet Peaks, P-E-A-K-S, Sweet Peaks for ice cream. They make their own ice cream there in Missoula. Phenomenal. I mean, it was, it was so good. Like, there's something incredibly spiritually satisfying, and I believe it's an act of worship to go, mmm, like that is worship to the Lord, right? Food is a gift from God. Now, at the same time, we know that food gives us energy, but not all foods give the same level of energy, Right? Like, we've all experienced that crash after the donut wears off. You're like, oh, I'm not, like, the, the mental fog is, is there now. Um, and so when we're, you know, at the restaurants, having lunch, um, you know, it, it, do we go with the salad? Do we go with the cheeseburger? You, you know, here's the thing. I would just say, think about that. I'm not saying don't get the cheeseburger, because what I ordered at Top Hat was definitely closer to a cheeseburger than it was to a salad. It had some green stuff on it, so that counts as salad, I think, but it was definitely not like health food, okay? But I would say, maybe don't have the cheeseburger right before your board meeting that afternoon, or right before you're about to chase your toddler around for the next two or three hours until nap time, right? Like if you know you're gonna need some energy, then plan accordingly with the food that you order and choose to eat, all right? And I would just say this, like many areas of our lives, moderation and balance are important. You can err on one side or the other of, of too much or too little. Here's what Ken says in, in this book, God in My Everything. He says, the occasional treat can be beneficial for our health. Helping release pleasure chemicals like serotonin and endorphins in the brain that produce a sense of well-being. This natural process is part of God's gift to us. The only thing sinful about occasionally eating chocolate or ice cream is that it violates Hollywood's unhealthy, unrealistic commandment around beauty. It is not a sin to enjoy food. The real sin is to embrace the unrealistic, unattainable standard of beauty perpetuated by the advertising industry. And I would just say amen to that. Um, and I'll talk more about uh, that here in a moment. But again, moderation, balance are important. Jesus fasted and he feasted. Like Jesus was the life of every party he attended. I think that's why he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Like you don't earn that reputation unless you know how to have a good time, right? Like he, he was just a life of the party. Like, and so there's times when we are gathered together with friends and family around the table and, and the laughter and the stories and the jokes are flowing more than the drinks and absolutely they should and the food and the like adds to that experience. There are times to enjoy that food and I believe there are also times to abstain. This is what fasting is. Fasting from food for a specified time and purpose. Fasting frees us to feast on God. When I, when I experience that, that, that hunger, that the, those rumblings, it reminds me of my desperate need for God. It reminds me of my spiritual hunger for God. 
He reminds me of the statements that Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, those, those who are in need of God. I need God, and I recognize that as, just like I need food. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, just like I feel hungry for food. God, I am hungry for you. And fasting aligns our our spirits, our souls, and our bodies. Fasting is praying with your body. It's an incredibly powerful thing. At the same time, fasting also reveals the things that control us, said Richard Foster. Here's what I mean by that. When I first started fasting on a consistent basis, I, I recognized... How, how quickly I, I became irritable with somebody who didn't meet my expectations. Or, or I, I recognize my, my desire or need to control a situation or to control an outcome. And I just felt the Holy Spirit kind of just poke my heart a little bit to go, hey, I'm, I'm trying to show you that there are times in your life where you would rather control people instead of love them. That, that you would rather manipulate the situation so that you look good and, instead of just being honest about how you're feeling or, or what you think, even if it's going to disappoint someone. Because you're so concerned with approval in the eyes of others. When, when, when you choose to take a break from food, fasting from food will reveal the things that control you. So I want to be just very clear. It's not all rainbows and butterflies and this amazing spiritual euphoria. It, it's hard. Like that, that's where God can do some deep work when we kind of step away from the things that we go to. Fasting also frees up time to pray. The time we would have spent either shopping or preparing the food is time that we can spend with the Lord. There's also some other benefits to Fasting. Uh, detoxification of our bodies, resting our digestive organs, and believe it or not, greater mental clarity. Not right away, but if you were to fast for a 24-hour period, that latter half, the last 12 hours or so of that 24-hour period, you're you're actually going to experience greater mental clarity as as your body is, is, is just... It's in a different spot. It's, it's operating differently from a physical and a mental standpoint. A lot of creatives or people who write will actually intentionally fast while they are working on a creative piece because it, it, the, the body and the mind are just more mentally sharp in those times. Now, I also want to say this. Be careful when it comes to fasting. Children women who are pregnant, those with either diabetes or other health concerns should not fast. Okay, there are times where you should absolutely not fast. Uh, When you do fast, drink lots of water. That's really important. And try not to exert yourself physically too much. Pick a different day or a different time to exercise, not the day you're fasting. And start small. Maybe start with one meal. Or if you can't do a meal, maybe start with a day where, hey, for one day I'm going to eat raw fruits and, and veggies and, and, and nuts. And, and that's going to kind of be the beginning of my fasting journey. And I would encourage you to, to consider adding fasting to your weekly rhythm of following Jesus. From, like for a 24-hour period, after dinner, one night, until dinner the next day. 
I've been practicing this for probably maybe eight or nine months now, most weeks. And it's hard. Um, the Lord's taught me a lot, continues to teach me a lot in those moments. Um, it, it does get a little bit easier as you persevere in the practice. Um, but there's something that God does when we say, okay, Lord, I, I want you and I desire you and in greater intimacy with you. And I want to grow and become the person you've created me to be. And, and, and I want that more than I want food for this period of time. God, God works in those moments. The reason why food, I think, is important to how we show up to God and to others is because I know for me, when I'm hangry or when I'm using food to cope with difficult emotions, I miss opportunities to turn to God in moments of need to allow him to move and shape and transform me into someone who is growing and loving others well. And that's why I think food is really important in our spiritual journey as well. All right, the last piece we're going to look at in Elijah's story is exercise. Because after he has a nap, after he has some good food, he goes on a journey. Forty days he travels, and then again, read the rest of 1 Kings 19, you'll see his encounter with God there. But exercise is incredibly important. I'm going to be honest. I am not a fan, often, of, of exercise, but I know it's important for my overall well-being. In 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and the life to come. Now, he's not saying physical training is, is not important. He's just saying it's not the most important thing. We're, we're, we're not after physical perfection. That's not the goal here. Okay, and this is not about a body type, a physical image, or a waist size. It's about health in our overall bodies and overall well-being as a person. When it comes to exercise, one of the greatest pitfalls I see is the comparison trap. You have to avoid the comparison trap. When I was in high school, I was even skinnier than I am now, and I remember being in a weightlifting class with like all the football guys is what it felt like. And it's like, I, I couldn't bench the amount that they were curling. It was like, just ridiculous. And I probably still can't. And because I couldn't do what they could do, I didn't do anything. I would kind of like pretend like I worked out and kind of wait, but I was insecure. I, I, I had inferiority issues. And I was like, because I can't do what they do, I'm not going to do anything. And I think that's sometimes a trap we find ourselves in is we look and say, well, I can't do that. So why would I even try? Start small. Maybe it's one push-up. And then after you're down there, you do one, you go, well, maybe I might as well do a couple more, I guess. Or walk one block. You might go, well, I walked one block. I guess I have to at least walk one block back. So that's two blocks. Start, start small, baby steps. And find an activity that you enjoy and people that you enjoy being with and put those things together. I, I do not enjoy running just to run. And I know there's a retired track coach in the room, so I'm sorry. It's just not my thing. Like, we're running. Why? What am I chasing? Or who's chasing me? Like, I need, I need a bigger purpose here. But I love playing basketball. I, if I've got a, I, I will run because I'm distracted from the fact that I'm running as I'm trying to play basketball. Tyler needs to come play basketball a little bit more. Uh, just saying. But I mean, I, I enjoy that activity. If you don't enjoy running. Don't run. If you don't enjoy playing basketball, find some that you enjoy. Make it fun and have some people that you're getting together with and doing that with. And have a bigger 
Why? Again, it's not about physical perfection. It's, it's, it's not about looking a certain type or comparing to what advertising says we should be. For me, my bigger why is I recognize and I'm, when I'm just physically depleted at the end of a day and I come home and my son wants to wrestle or play soccer and I'm like, but I'm, I'm tired. I don't like feeling that way. I want to have energy for my kids, eventually for my grandkids. Like I want to show up well to the people around me. And when I'm physically exhausted, I don't have the energy to get through a day, I'm not at my best. I want to bring my best to, to God and the people around me. This quote says, The way we use and treat our bodies, for better or worse, will, will profoundly shape our spirit in our relationships with God, others, and life itself. And I want to come back to this Parker Palmer quote where he says, Self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer to others. And then one last quote from Ken Shigematsu, where he kind of ties this all together. He says, as we receive the gifts of rejuvenating sleep, nourishing food, and invigorating exercise, we in turn are free to offer our whole selves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. There is nothing superficial about this. It is a spiritual acts of worship. So my hope and invitation as we not just round out this conversation but this series is God created us as whole beings to, to, to have integrity. I mean, that word is important in our culture and important to us as followers of Jesus means that, that I recognize how one part of my life impacts the other and that I can't separate who I am spiritually from who I am mentally emotionally, relationally, or physically. They're all intertwined. And, and if I want to be all in for Jesus, growing in my love for God and my love for others, I can't neglect one out of preference for another. All of it's important in the way we show up to God and we show up to others in our relationships. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the way that you created us. God, we thank you for the wisdom that we see in your word, in your life as an example to us. And God, I ask that you would help us to, to be encouraged by hopefully an invitation from your spirit. God, the, you are not one who ever brings condemnation. God, you bring invitations to growth, to health, and to next steps in our relationship with you. And I pray that every single one of us, God, that we would be aware and responsive to the invitation you're placing before us today to be fully present to you and the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.